Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Chemistry is complicated, but that complex chemistry had to start somewhere. We think about the formation of planets. We know how planets formed after aggregation. But how do all the complex chemistry that leads to the world that we know around us today, full of life and weird chemical reactions, where did that start? And how did it start? I have to go back to ask fundamental questions. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. It's about chemistry. Is If you really try to watch what's happening, it can be hard to make sense of it. You can design an experiment to try and isolate an individual reaction, but it is really hard to observe influencing it. It's in the same way that a physicist might try to isolate a single particle to try and analyse something that happens to it. It's really tricky to do. The unit's measurements and reactions of molecules are on a scale that makes it really difficult. And when you want to try and dive into the detail, it's hard you need to develop really complicated mechanisms analysing these chemical reactions. That's what researchers at ETH Zurich University and the University of Geneva have been developing. Now, if you want to look at chemical reactions, not only do you have to try and isolate them on their own, you also need to look really quickly because they happen pretty fast. Now, that means you need a way of imaging or viewing what's occurring that can operate not in milliseconds, not in nanoseconds, actually just in a few femtoseconds, a few quadrillionths of a second. That is incredibly difficult to get your head around, but that's what the researchers have been trying to work on. Using an X-ray spectroscopy technique, all the work is being done by researchers led by Hans-Jakob Warner, a professor of chemistry at ETH Zurich, and they've just published a paper about their femtosecond research on urea in particular in the journal Nature. Now, lead author on this paper is Song Ying, along with Yuping Chang and a number of others from the collaboration in the lab of Professor Werner. Now, what they were investigating is actually even more fascinating than the method that they used to study it. So we're going to talk a little bit first about what they were trying to dive into, because what they're investigating is actually one of the most fundamental questions on Earth that you could imagine. And that is, not just where did life come from, but how did chemistry, the things that we need on Earth to create life, even begin to happen? Because on its own, the complex type of chemistry that we see here on Earth had to start somewhere. And to figure out the beginnings of this chemistry, there's something that scientists and researchers have been investigating and thinking about for a long time. And we have to go back to the late 20s and 30s to come up with the first cogent scientific theory about this early part of the world, the primordial soup. And then this was further explored and actually some evidence created all the way up in the 1950s. So we're going to dive into the story of analysing the primordial soup, how we can isolate out as we want to try and watch, and then we're going to look at exactly how these researchers managed to tune in on the femtosecond level to actually see the reactions in process.
one of the most fundamental questions that humans have been asking themselves since probably the dawn of time is where did we come from and where did all life? You can think about this in a number of different ways and the Aristotelian doctrine, maybe life was some kind of spontaneous generation. And Jean-Baptiste de Lamarck, you know, was one of the first to say maybe that life would have come from non-living materials. So nature would have generated life by that meaning heat, light, electricity and moisture. Other researchers like Darwin and others would have talked about maybe coming from some simple organism in some warm little pond evolving up into something much larger. But how this could actually work and how we could have a cogent theory of this primordial evolution could be traced back to the work of two researchers in the 20s, which really explained all this further. Well, the first researchers, a Soviet biochemist, Alexander Oparin, in 1924, published a lot of work which was very similar to an independently investigated work by Haldane in England. Important stumbling block before you can think about something as complex as a single cell organism is you've got to have the right chemistry present. Now, Earth, as it was formed as a planet, would have had a lot of geological stuff happen. Volcanic eruptions, mashing of asteroids and other planetary bodies to form the surface, and eventually the formation of things like plate tectonics. But all of these elements would have needed to react to form more and more complex chemical reactions. These complex chemical compounds and molecules, they had to come from somewhere, they had to be made, and they had to form actually even more complicated things that you can then build using the building box for life, requires a lot of chemistry to happen. Now, a pattern was ideated based on around having kind of sort of surface on the earth with carbon, oxygen, water vapour and ammonia reacting with each other to form the first more complex organic compounds that you would need. Now, Haldane extended this a little bit further by suggesting that perhaps ultraviolet light acting on the water, carbon dioxide and ammonia would create all kinds of different material that could then be used as the building blocks for life. More or less, you can summarise it as early Earth probably had a chemically reducing atmosphere, which means that no oxygen present, but a lot of other, other chemicals. The atmosphere was then exposed to all kinds of energy, ultraviolet, heat, you name it. And these would have produced some simple organic compounds called monomers. These compounds would have then accumulated up in the prebiotic soup, this morsh of liquid or ponds or atmosphere, you name it. And they could have concentrated in places like shorelines or near oceanic vents, other sources of energy. And then some further transformation using that energy would have occurred with sufficient concentrations of these gases and chemical compounds to create more complicated complex organic polymers. This would have been then the area, the soup, that life could have started to develop in. That is the broad strokes part of Aparin and Haldane's theory about primordial soup. But it really took another turn with actual evidence generated by graduate student Stanley Miller at the time and his professor Harold Ure, whose lab he was working in. Now, they came up with an experiment to try and replicate these conditions of the primordial soup and to see how organic molecules could have been just spontaneously formed from all of these inorganic precursors. They tried to recreate as best as they could the Oparin Haldane hypothesis in what they called now, as we know as a famous experiment, the Miller-Ure experiment. They had a highly reduced mixture of gas, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. They were sealed together in a little five-litre glass flask connected to 
around half a litre of water. The water in the small flask was then heated. This caused evaporation, which is pretty useful, and meant that that water vapour could then enter the mixture of gases in the other chamber. Inside that other chamber, they then introduced a spark with electrodes, mimicking that what you would see when a lightning strike would occur. We know that lightning strikes can occur with a right atmospheric combination, so as a source of energy, lightning strikes are a good one. And what they saw as a result is out of that mixture of gases mixed with water vapour and that jolt of electricity, they could synthesise pretty complicated organic compounds from those simpler inorganic precursors. Now, okay, not huge amounts of them, but enough. And in enough quantity and of time, they would build up and concentrate more. When researchers, even in 2007, went back and explored the data from Stanley Miller, the original samples where he said, oh, okay, you can produce urea and other compounds, actually they could found that you could make over 20 different amino acids that were just produced in Miller's simple experiment alone. Now, and some of these amino acids are stuff that does naturally occur in our genetic code, or stuff that will occur beyond what we see normally in genetic code. So this means that the type of generation method would have produced unique and interesting compounds. Now, okay, maybe the gas composition is wrong. Maybe that gas composition isn't exactly what all the Earth's atmosphere had. But nevertheless, it is a good proof of concept to show that you could actually generate complex organic chemistry just from having precursors and a bit of energy, like lightning. You could change that energy source maybe for ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, solar flares, you name it, but it's enough to show that it certainly can produce interesting forms of life without requiring a seed to come in. Now, that is one of the fascinating parts about complex chemistry. Now, if that gas composition changes, maybe you could still produce compounds, just different types of compounds. And that's been the status of research for a while now, investigating exactly what the combination of gases you need and what conditions and energy sources to produce the building blocks as we know it. that would have been produced and was produced in the original 1950s urea experiment is of course urea. Now urea could have become concentrated and enriched in puddles um, as the water in, in that primordial soup evaporated the concentration of urea increases and with enough other ionizing radiation exposed to that urea it could have produced other compounds malic acid and over multiple synthetic steps, this could have then led to the creation of building blocks of RNA and DNA. Thus, life formed from the primordial soup. The experiment of Yuri Miller was more to look at could you form the precursors needed. Afterwards, it starts to get more and more complicated. Researchers from ETH Zurich and University of Geneva were outlining in the paper published in the journal Nature how they could use urea and analyze what happens to it when it's exposed to ionizing radiation. You want to see that long complex step where you get from urea to DNA and RNA? Well, you've got to see how it gets out of that urea stage first. And 
one thing that they did is to really study exactly what was happening to that concentrated urea solution. When you concentrate urea, you end up with pairs known as dimers. And when you expose that to ionizing radiation, it causes a hydrogen atom which within each of those dimers to move from one urea molecule to the other. This turns one urea molecule into a protonated urea molecule and the other into a urea radical. What's important about that is not the names as much as that the fact that it's highly chemically reactive. So reactive that in fact it's incredibly likely then to react with other molecules around it, thus making malonic acid. Now, that transfer of the hydrogen atom happens incredibly fast, around 150 femtoseconds, 150 quadrillionths of a second. That means it would be so fast it would preempt any other type of reaction that could possibly take place. This is why the researchers believe then you end up with so much urea in the concentrated solution with urea radicals rather than any other type of reaction that you could otherwise have. These types of really fast, really complicated chemical reactions are important to understand not just how they occur, how quickly they occur, but in what sequence, because there's all kinds of chemical reactions that can take place in liquids, but in what order is important, because depending on that order, you can end up from one starting point to somewhere very, very different. And not all biochemical processes in the human body, there's a whole bunch of different chemical synthesis that happen now inside our bodies, in pools and puddles, and out in the world in industrial processes. And analysing how they work, how quickly they work, and what's happening inside of them is really a cool thing that relies on X-ray spectroscopy to get a really, really fast insight to what is complicated reactions taking place inside these liquids or gases. They needed to make is a really specialized piece of apparatus to do this. This apparatus is capable of producing a liquid jet with diameter of less than one micrometer in a vacuum. Because if you make that jet any wider, of course, it'll start to absorb the X-rays that you're using to analyze it rather than just ignore them. And with that jet stream, they can get really precise timing images about what was happening inside. So not only were they trying to solve the puzzle of formation of life, which is fascinating, but as a tool that can be used to understand chemical reactions, their complex nature, and their sequence and timing, it's incredibly powerful as well. So this paper, published in the journal Nature, with lead author Zhongxing Yin and other brothers from ETH Zurich and Zurich University, shows how we can analyse some of the most fundamental questions in chemistry and get a really fast insight to what is happening. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Putting on earlier work to explore the formations of complex chemistry, researchers developed new techniques to deeply analyse and quickly order of precedence happens when you have complex chemical reactions in urea. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.